0: I have entitled the message for today, Salvation Joy in a Suffering World, and it's um, part one. There's absolutely no way we could finish it today, and I'm not even going to try. But the text in front of us is a marvelous one. Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering, and they will suffer worse than they are at the time of his writing. His shepherd heart goes out to them, and he wants to equip them to be able to go through the suffering and the trouble that's coming their way and to go through it blessed. And to that end, he writes verses 6 through 9, and I want to read through them together. In verse 6, he says, "...in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials." He says that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ whom having not seen you love though now you do not see him yet believing you rejoice notice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. He's talking about a full orbed supernatural joy that comes to you from God for all the different reasons that we're going to be talking about. And in verse 9 he says, Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now as you look at these verses, in verse 6 he says, In this you greatly rejoice. Not just rejoice, but greatly rejoice. And in verse 8 he says, You rejoice with joy inexpressible. You can't even put it into words, it's so great. Peter's theme here is salvation joy. And this salvation joy is on his heart because he cares so much about these people and because he understands so richly the joy that is his in Christ and he wants God's people to experience every bit of the joy that is theirs. Now, what I want to do as we approach this text is I want to kind of back up and take a running leap at it. Because we're going to be dealing with it today and next time as well. So I want to talk about joy in general for the next few minutes. And to begin, I'd like you to turn to the book of Luke. The book of Luke, Gospel of Luke to chapter 15. Here our Lord is teaching, giving some very wonderful parables. And the thought that I want to draw out here is simply this, that Joy is built into salvation. Joy is built into salvation. Jesus moves through here in a pretty rapid fire way and he gives these parables. There is the one here about the lost sheep and they're salvation parables. And in verse six in the parable dealing with the lost sheep, it says, And when he come ho- comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you, Jesus says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 just persons who need no repentance. So here is the salvation of a soul, and here is the joy. In heaven over that sinner's salvation. Then we move to the parable of the lost coin. And in verse 9, the woman's lost the coin, looked everywhere for it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. And Jesus adds here and he says, I say to you, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So here is the joy in heaven in the presence of the angels, which we've talked about before, could possibly be a reference to the joy in God's heart. As it's in the presence of the angels, that when one sinner repents, God gets so excited, he is so happy... That, that joy spills over onto the angels and then they're all excited. It's like these movies where you see everybody's watching the king, wondering his reaction to the situation. The king finds the situation funny and the whole court starts laughing. Suddenly the king is sad and everybody gets quiet and they have sad looks on their face and they're watching the king and then he laughs again and everybody laughs. Well, they're all here in heaven and one angel Another angel, another. They see this sinner repent and they're watching God and he gets so explosively happy. And they're all so happy because God is happy. There's all this joy surrounding salvation, even of one sinner. And then you know the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son in Luke 15 here, 22. He comes back and the father said to his servants as the son repents and It's a picture again of salvation. He says, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be, what is it? Mary. Here is a picture of celebration and joy in the middle of life, which is so full of heartache, and as this son who has had his share of heartache comes back to enjoy salvation with the Father, the first thing that the Father does is He begins the celebration of joy. Joy begins right at salvation. He says, For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And notice again, And they began to make merry. They. So that when one person comes into salvation, it's the design of God that that person be welcomed into the joy that is already existing within his family. Salvation is all about the joy of God that he gives to you as a gift the moment you come to know him. And it is to go on and on and on, and it's to be a tremendous joy. Peter talks about rejoicing greatly. And it's joy on the part of God, joy on the part of the angels, joy on the part of Jesus, joy on the part of the church, joy on the part of all those that see another redeemed, and joy on the part of the person who's been saved. All this joy. In Psalm 4-7, the psalmist said, You have put gladness into my heart. God puts joy into your heart. He said, More than in the season that their grain and their wine is increased. In an agricultural society, High point of the year is a harvest and all of that. He said, better than all of that is the joy that you put in my heart. In Luke 2.10, we think of this often at the Christmas season. the angel said to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which is for how many people? All people. It's something that God has for everyone that comes to salvation. In First 1 Thessalonians 1, 1.6, Paul is writing back to the people he had been with, and he said, You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word, and here's the critical part that pertains to Peter, in much affliction, and then he adds this, with joy. So the joy that comes with salvation, it's for all of us. Richard Baxter Puritan writer years ago said, Keep company with the more cheerful sort of the godly, for there is no joy like the joy of believers. I like that advice. That's good advice. Why? Because here's Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son. They're making Mary, they add the son into that. There is to be a joyful fellowship among believers. God wants you to enjoy your walk with him. Baxter says, Keep company with the more cheerful sort of the godly. There's no joy like the joy of believers hang around with, if I could put it in the vernacular, hang around with joyful Christians. Look for those people going forward. Spend your time with them. You don't want to spend all your time in the Christian life with the glum chums that don't know how to keep their joy that God has to give to them and would love to just drag you down into their gloom with them. So you can sit around in dark rooms muttering to yourselves when God wants you to rejoice. God has joy for you in the Christian life. Someone has well said, a cheerful countenance has a lot of face value. Takes a minute on that one. But I like that. I like that because joy should find its way into your face. You want to Hang around with people that are joyful. They have a joyful countenance. I find some people, I think if a twinkle hit their eye, it'd probably blow their eye right out of their socket. They haven't had any joy in so long. Listen, if you have it, it'll show. Eyes are the window to the soul. So this joy is ours in Christ. And he gives it to us as a gift in salvation. So the only way we lose it then is when we allow it to be taken from us. We need to be we we must be robbed of it if we're to lose it. And the fact is, if we are robbed of our joy it's because we are willingly robbed of our joy. You see, joy is built into salvation. And sin and suffering in general are the things that will rob us then of that joy. It is often sin that takes our joy away from us. God gives it to you, something must take it if you don't have it. So if you don't have joy today maybe you have allowed sin to rob you of your joy joy departs when sin comes one of the ways we forfeit our joy is with a lack of repentance and this is something that can go on and on and on if you haven't had joy in a long time maybe you haven't had a short account with God in a long time Maybe you haven't repented. Maybe you've held on to sin for so long, it's dried up all your joy. This is possible. In the Bible, God singles out a man among the human race, and He calls him a man after his own heart. What a profound statement for God to make about a human being. To look among human beings and say, Here is a man that is what I desire a man to be. He is a man after my own heart thinks about the right things, preoccupied with the right things, devoted to me. And yet, that man, we know him, he's David. That man, with that kind of heart, you know he must have experienced great joy. If ever there was a joyful human being, it would have to be a man after God's own heart, right? And yet, David, when he committed his sin with Bathsheba, went for nearly a year without repenting of that sin. As long as it takes for a baby to be conceived and to be born, which is around nine months. The baby had been born by the time Nathan came to David and had to give him a parable to make him see his own sin so he would repent of it. He had not repented in almost a year of the sin with Bathsheba. I venture to say it was the worst year of his life. I venture to say that for a man after God's own heart, he had probably known joy the way God intends a man to know joy. And yet in that year, it was probably the most joyless year of his entire life. And it was because he allowed himself to be robbed of the joy that God has for a believer. In Psalm 51, we have the record of David's repentance. You don't have to turn there. I'll just refer to it. In Psalm 32, which was written later, though it comes earlier in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 32, David reflects back on that year. And it records what that year was like. It was a bad year. In Psalm 51, in his repentance, he writes this. In verse 12, he says, Lord, restore to me what the joy of my salvation he says and uphold me with your generous spirit lord i'm back lord it's been a rough year and lord one of the things i miss more than anything else is the joy that you alone can give please god restore now to me the joy that is mine and my salvation with you and then as he reflects later and he writes psalm 32 He speaks of the loss of joy in that year of no repentance. I'd like you to turn to Psalm 32, beginning with verse 2. I want to read it to you from the NIV because it's easy to be understood in that version. He says in Psalm 32, verse 2, he says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. And then he adds this, in whose spirit is no deceit? Why does he write that? He writes it because through that year where he did not repent, his heart was full of deceit. No real dialogue with God about the real issues. Rather, he kept his own heart in a place of deceit. Thus, his sin was not forgiven. And so, reflecting back now after he's repented, he says, Oh, how blessed is the man who doesn't hold deceit in his heart because it is that man who is forgiven. And then he goes on to explain in verse 3 he says, When I kept silent, this is between him and God on the issue of his sin. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Now, here's a guy talking about some real agony. And my groaning all the day long. He says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. And my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. My moisture all dried up, the King James says. Why was God's hand heavy upon him? Because God loves his people. God wants you to be filled with joy. So when you allow yourself to be robbed of your joy and to remain unrepentant in sin, God's hand will be heavy upon you. Why? Because He won't let you go. He wants you to be happy. I know as a parent, I have kids, and I know that when one of my kids is in the wrong frame of mind or heart, I don't let them go. And we're working on their attitude because we know that God wants them to have a happy life and so do we and we, we want to do everything we can to adjust their attitude and so here's God with his hand heavy on David because he loves David so much and he wants to bring David back to the joy of his salvation so it is sin that often takes our joy from us someone has well said that nothing will stop your song quicker than your sin isn't that true? You know one of the amazing things about being a Christian is that we have a song in our heart. Did you ever think about that? We're so different than the world. The world doesn't go around with a song in their heart. They may sing, 99 bottles of beer on the wall, you know, swinging the mug back and forth and all that. They like to get drunk and sing and that kind of thing. But in general, it's peculiar to see someone just singing. Before I was converted... In some of the worst parts of my life, I was addicted to barbiturates, and many of you know them as reds, and I was a very bad influence on my friend, John Foster, and I'd go over to his house, pick him up to go surfing, and his mother knew what I was up to. And I'd come stumbling in there. i go, where's John at? And she'd go, are you on breads again? Oh, no, Mrs. Foster. And I'm looking at her all cross-eyed. I'm, everything's fine, Mrs. Foster. You know, like an Eddie Haskell type thing. And she knew I was a bad influence on John. And after I was converted, the, their family used to go down to Newport Beach to the Santa Ana River Jetty. And I'd go hang around and surf with her son and... After I was converted, right after, like within days, 19 years old, I went down and I was surfing down at the jetty and I got out of the water and I went over and they had this cruiser bike parked on the side of their house. And I hopped on that bike... And I'd only known the Lord for a few days and learned a few songs over at Calvary Costa Mesa. And I got on that bike and I started cruising along and singing at the top of my lungs. Happy, 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 happy are the people who's is the Lord. I'm cruising all around, going back and forth. And she came out, she looked at me, she said, what is wrong with you? I said, what do you mean? I'm having a great time. She said, you, smiling you she said you even look normal I said look look at my eyes I am normal for once I'm normal I'm normal I love it she said what happened to you I said I found Jesus Christ or he found me I said and I have a song in my heart now I'm not on drugs anymore and I'm happy for the first time in my life I have joy So I sing a little more and she said stop stop you know Christians have a song in their heart. They have joy. It's the joy of salvation. And there is nothing that will silence your song faster than your own sin. It is often sin that takes our joy from us. And another thought that I want to raise in your mind, and Peter is addressing it in his epistle, is that it is often suffering that we allow to rob us of our joy. Suffering can rob us of our joy if we let it. Peter is writing to these people who are facing great suffering, and he wants these suffering saints to maintain joy in their suffering. And so in 1 Peter 1 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been, notice, grieved by various trials. He wants them to know that they do not have to allow their circumstances to rob them of their joy. And often we do, don't we? We allow our circumstances to rob us of our joy. So where do I go when I don't like my circumstances to find joy? You know where the world goes. But where do I go as a Christian? Well, you know that positive circumstances produce happiness for any human being, right? But for the Christian, it is a positive relationship with the living God that will produce happiness. Real joy deep down within your soul, regardless of your circumstances. So where do I go in adverse circumstances, trouble and everything to find joy? I go to Jesus Christ. I go to cultivate my relationship with Him. And then I have a joy that is deep down inside. It's a deep down confidence that my life is in with Christ and God. And it is a joy that bubbles all the way up out, and people can see it, and it's real through and through. So, Peter, what he does is this he gives us five points of contact. Five points of contact to rediscover salvation joy. And it comes in confidence in these five things, and so we get to our outline. Let me give you the outline now. This is where we're going. Five things to help us rediscover our joy. First of all, our inheritance. Secondly, our trials. Third, our honor that we will receive from Jesus Christ. Fourth, our fellowship with Him. And number five, our deliverance. Here are five things. If you don't have joy in your life, if you will focus on these things and understand them, five things to bring the joy back. Our inheritance, trials, honor, fellowship, and deliverance. And we'll take them one by one. But obviously we will not take more than the first today with the time we have left. So let's go to the first thought, our inheritance. Our inheritance contributes to our joy. In 1 Peter 1, six, Peter says, In this, now that's critical, in this, he says you greatly rejoice. And that is to say a couple of things. One, where we look is very important. Peter says, in this you rejoice. What do you mean in this? In what? Well, he's pointing us back to the previous verses. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 speaks about our inheritance, which is incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away and is reserved in heaven for us. Verse 5 speaks of the power of God to keep us through faith so that we will see the day when that inheritance is given to us and we enjoy it forever. So, do you want to experience a fullness of joy in the Christian life? Then rejoice in this, that you have a protected inheritance waiting for you in heaven and you have a protected life here to get you safely there so you can enjoy it forever. All of that is to say where you are looking in your life is critical. So that somewhere along the line, I don't know if you've discovered it yet or not, but you've got to get your eyes off this world. If you've been looking to this world for your satisfaction, you've got to turn your eyes away to heaven, to your inheritance there. So as long as you keep looking for your satisfaction here, you're going to find only disappointment. It's fleeting satisfaction at best. But if you get your eyes off this world and you start looking where you should look, you will find that that eternal perspective is a powerful influence in your life. Thomas Manton put it this way. He said, Christians are too often cold and careless in spiritual life because they do not think more often of heaven. I thank God for the hope I have in front of me, the inheritance I have waiting for me. And that becomes my focal point. It's for a reason in Colossians 3, 1 and 2 that Paul writes and he says, If you were then raised with Christ, if you're a Christian now, born again, seek the things which are where? Above. Where Christ is sitting on the right hand of God. He says, set your mind. Now that's an act of the will. Set your mind. Take your mind and focus it. Be careful about where you look. Look toward heaven, to the things above. You set set your mind on things above and not on the things on the earth. And this is the issue. You decide, you do, where you're going to look in life. I can't decide that for you. Your wife cannot decide that for you. Your husband cannot decide that for you. Your children, your friend, all those people that are smiling around you, that have their eyes in the right place, cannot make the decision for you. To get your eyes focused on heaven and off the things of this world so that you can go from being a glum chum to a glad fellow in the kingdom of God. No one can make that decision for you. You must make it yourself. Where you choose to look is critical. A certain minister... I love minister illustrations. They really speak to me for some reason. But a certain minister appeared unusually cheerful through suffering and severe affliction. So... One of the people in his church asked him, they said, what is the secret of your contentment? He said, I'll tell you, I make right use of my eyes. Your eyes? Well, I don't understand. It's very simple, said the minister. First, I look up to heaven and I remember where I'm going. Second, I look down to earth and I realize how small a place I'm going to occupy when I'm dead and buried. Finally, I look around and I see that there are many who are in all respects much worse off than I am. He said, that brings me to three conclusions. Remember, he's a preacher. That brings me to three conclusions. First, I learn where true happiness lies. Heaven. Secondly, I recognize where all our cares are going to end. The grave. And he says, third, I realize how little reason I have to complain. There's always somebody worse off than me. So where we look is very important. And I want to give you another thought to add to that. What we anticipate is very important in terms of our inheritance. Where we look is very important and what we anticipate is is very important. Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. It's now. So the idea is that we savor the joy of anticipation. You know what that's like already, the thrill of anticipation, don't you? So many things in life give us a thrill of anticipation, whether it be going on a trip, you get all, all the brochures and the pictures, and you're just looking, you're showing your friends, look, I'm going here, can't you see that white sand, that bright sun? that's where I'm going, and you're just full of the thrill of anticipation. And then there's the thrill, you know, of Christmas anticipation. Some of you have that now. I see it on your faces. You've been hoping for that big thing. Didn't get it last Christmas, the one before. And you're just excited to wake up on Christmas morning and not to run to the tree. No, because it's too big to fit under the tree. You're going to run to the garage. And you're just full of anticipation. You know the thrill of anticipation. Some of you know the thrill of anticipation when you go to the mall of that new outfit and there you go racking. It's a sport, racking. You go racking. And you're just nimble fingers and you're moving through. You're looking good. And you find that special outfit and it looks so good. As we talked about, the salesman or saleswoman, you look so thin. You look so young. You've found the fountain of youth in that outfit. And you put it on. Oh, it's just, you just a radiant And so you figure you were going to leave, but now you're going to wear it and you're going to wear it in the mall and you're going to go to every store and just feel good. You're looking in the windows. You're looking at your shoes because you got those two. And you're going through the mall. Oh, it's fabulous. But then you go home and you take that outfit off and you hang it in the closet and then you wear it again a few times and, and then, you know, the realization of the thing seems to come in on you and all of a sudden, you look at that and you say, well, you put it on, you look in the mirror and you go, oh, this old thing. This old thing. What have I ever seen in this old thing? And for a woman, that's about three days after you buy it. <laughs> what am I saying? I'm saying that often the realization is not as thrilling as the anticipation. That fever that gets you as you're on the way to the mall. You know, that fever, that thrill as you're on your way toward Christmas. So often the realization is not as great as the anticipation was, but looking toward our inheritance, looking toward heaven, full of anticipation, savoring the thrill of the anticipation. I want to say to you today that the reality you will experience in heaven is going to far exceed the anticipation that you had. Because when you get to heaven... It's going to be the reality of an unhindered joy. You see, as Thomas Watson said, here joy begins to enter into us. There we enter into joy. And it is an unhindered joy. No sin, nothing to hinder it. It is a full explosive joy that will go on and on. And further, the reality in heaven, and I love to contemplate this, far exceeds the anticipation of here Because it is the reality of the ultimate reason for my existence. I'm a unique person. So are you. Totally unique. God created you totally unique. And in this life, I have really given myself to discovering the meaning for my existence. Why is Danny Bond here? And I have somewhat discovered the meaning of that existence. But you see... I am an eternal being. I will live forever. In heaven, I am going to discover the realization for which I was made, the ultimate realization. I am going to find out why I exist in heaven, and I am going to enjoy the fulfillment of my niche in God's world perfectly forever. I love to think about that. I've failed so often in this life. I've missed the mark. I've crossed over the line. I've slipped and I've fallen into sin. I've done all those things. I've fallen short of my calling, short of my giftedness. And so still the question is always there. Am I attaining what I was made for? But in heaven, I will know the full realization of who I am and what God created me for. And further, as a unique person, I have unique longings in my heart those longings will be met perfectly by God forever. As an eternal creature with longings and feelings and outreachings that come out from my heart, out into my world, when I get to heaven, those longings will be fully satisfied. The reality of heaven will far exceed my greatest moments of anticipation. And there's one last thought I just want to add to it before we finish. The reality of heaven will be of an unhindered fellowship with those that are waiting for us. There are people waiting for you in heaven. Do you know that? You see, those that enter into heaven will find that they are neither unknown nor unexpected. People are expecting you. They're waiting for you. And when you get there, you're going to know the joy of unhindered fellowship. Those people in your life that you have wept at their grave, that knew Christ... They're waiting for you. They're knowing you already. They know you. They're waiting for you. And when you get there, they're going to find you and you're going to enjoy unhindered fellowship forever. That mother that died of yours that you're missing, that's waiting for you. You will know a relationship with her you never dreamed of. That spouse who died, that child who was taken, as it were, it seemed prematurely from this life. They're waiting for you. The angels that have guided you through this life, watching over you, ministers to those that are heirs of salvation, they know you. They're tracking your life even now. They followed you here today. They know what you had for breakfast or what you're going to have later. They're with you. They know you. They expect you. But you know the greatest thing of all is that the one who died for you, the one who suffered for your sin the one who uniquely bore your sin, knows you and is waiting for you, waiting with open arms to receive you, so that the reality of an unhindered fellowship with your Christ, your Jesus, your Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord is going to bless you forever and ever and ever, so that what you anticipate is critical. I'll tell you, these are the things that dominate my life here. These are the things that make the hardships here bearable. And these are the things that in looking toward these things, full of anticipation and hope, cause every new day to be a brand new adventure and it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. There's a lot of trouble in life. We're going to talk about that next time. But there's also a lot of joy that God wants to give you to be the strength of your life. In the midst of that trouble... Do not allow yourself to be robbed of that joy. Be careful where you look. Make sure you're anticipating the right things. Learn all you can about those things. Your inheritance. So you are a joyful Christian here and now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these things. Thank you for these great truths. Thank you, Lord, for our salvation joy. I do pray, Lord, that you would bless every person here with a real salvation experience and the fullness of joy that is theirs in Christ. Lord, this day for those that have gone far too long in unrepentant sin, with a deceitful heart before you and have not known joy in so long, I do pray, Lord, that you would bring them back to that place of honesty before you today that they would acknowledge your hand has been heavy on their life and this would be the day, this day, this moment when they turn and come again to you to receive that cleansing and to receive again the joy that is theirs in Christ. Lord, bless and move among us this day. Bring us all to the place of honesty. Lord, for those that have never known this joy, that do not know you personally, draw them, Lord, to the place of honesty and repentance in this hour and humility before you. They could begin to receive that joy and be welcomed into the merriment of your people. Lord, we love you so much. You have done so much for us. Help us, Lord, to go on experience all that you have for us in Christ. And we will be careful to give you all the glory. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.